What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, bank CEOs face Congress. You are the six most powerful business leaders in this country. As Wall Street recovers from the pandemic, lawmakers question the motives and the money of the big banks. Americans for Financial Reform's Alexis Goldstein. This isn't just about 2008. This is about all of the regulatory relaxation that happened in the wake of the pandemic. And Congress has some really good questions about whether or not the relaxing of those regulations worked. And I would argue that they didn't. And a banking defense of sorts from investor Anthony Scaramucci. I get the fact that they're fat cats and I get the fact that there's a rise of systemic populism. But we've got to step back and we have to recognize that we're in a capitalist society. Martha Stewart getting even deeper in the weeds. Her partnership with Canopy Growth and some new CBD snacks to try. I think other people will find that it just adds a little something extra to a day. Those stories plus vaccine incentives. Good evening and welcome to the Vaximillion giveaway. Where we Giveaways to get the jab. CNBC's Bertha Coons. This week, the U.S. Treasury signed off on states using COVID relief funds for those prizes with four more states now running sweepstakes. It's Thursday, May 27th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. A small activist fund won an historic boardroom battle, gaining two seats on ExxonMobil's board. And Leslie Pickard joins us uh, with a look at how the engine number one did it. The little <laughs> engine that could. Leslie, are you going to say that? Little uh, engine that could. Little engine that did. I mean, you said it, Joe. Uh, but I'll, I'll repeat it because uh, we're reading a lot of children's books at homes these days. But uh, you are asking the same question that many in the boardrooms across America are asking, which is, how did they do it? How was it that a brand new firm that took on a giant and iconic company, Exxon, with just a 0.02 percent stake, likely secured two board seats, maybe even a third? Part of it was opportunistic timing. And the other part, well, it was a message that resonated with the shareholders. First on timing, 2020, of course, was a historically tumultuous year for oil. The pandemic creating a demand shock. The commodity slumped, although it has since recovered as economies reopened, but not without leaving behind some scars. With Exxon reporting record losses last year, that caused shareholders to really take a hard look at the business to see what needed changing. Engine number one entered the scene in December, riding in on this tailwind of an increasingly popular ESG or environmental social governance movement, one that had the largest asset managers in the world publicly pledging support for sustainability. Thanks in part to its goal to pivot Exxon toward cleaner energy projects, Engine One received early backing from massive pension funds and this week, BlackRock. Now, engine number one's victory exemplifies the power of that climate messaging. It's sending a signal to CEOs this morning that they, too, could be facing the next proxy fight over pollution as well as profits. Joe. All right. Thank you, uh, Les. I was looking for the, the op-ed in, in The Wall Street Journal. You know, it's, it's what you would think, uh, I, I guess. But uh, they, they tie a lot of it to 
the, the pension managers and the, uh, the Black Rocks of the world, the Larry mm-hmm. Finks of the world, and, and they attribute it to currying favor with, with who's in power in, in, uh, uh, in Washington uh, at this point. Um, how do you measure the, where the concentration was, or can you, uh, in, in mm-hmm. which shareholders? That, did individual shareholders, as a, as a rule, go for this, or was it really the, the big... Uh, the big holders, the big institutional people. Yeah, well, it's interesting because about half of the outstanding shares are held by retail investors. And so we don't know how they voted. And it's likely that they were somewhat mixed in uh, their voting behavior. BlackRock did come out with a bulletin yesterday saying that they voted for three of the four nominees on engine number one slate. We don't know about Vanguard. We don't know about State Street. I think those are the two wild cards that people are a bit curious about, especially since uh, a former State Street CEO is actually on Exxon's board. So it would be interesting to see how they voted. But, um, you know, those the, the big asset managers hold about 20 percent of the shares um, in Exxon. And so if they all voted in favor of at least part of engine number one's slate, that could have a big difference. And Calster's other uh, kind of, mm-hmm. I don't want to call them woke uh, organizations, but uh, it's, a, it's pretty unbelievable. It was also, Leslie, it was interesting because <laughs> the journal started with, all right, trot out the hysterical headlines about it's over for fossil fuels in their op-ed pages, and then splashed across the front of the Wall Street Journal was major setback. For I was like, so <laughs> which one is it? <laughs> that's the China, well, that's the China Wall, uh, which at least still exists at the Journal um, to some extent between uh, news and, and opinion. Yeah, no, you know, I think but I think you bring up a good point that people are starting to ask the questions. There is this camp that looks at what happened with Shell yesterday, what happened with Exxon yesterday, what happened with Chevron yesterday. All had these major decisions, whether in the courtroom or from shareholders that, uh, you know, were putting pressure on these companies to reduce their emissions. Uh, yep. Then on the other hand, you've got different camps who say, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. It's not a demonstrative change for these three companies. And so. It'll be interesting to watch to see how it really plays well, out. It's, it's, it, the transition is, is, is multi-decades. That's what we right. know. So I don't, I don't know what this means near term, but it literally is going to take that long to transition. Or things are going to be very expensive, or GDP is going to be hit, or there, there are real downside horrific downside consequences of moving too, too quickly on this. Well, uh, I mean, Exxon, yeah, they are, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal actually yesterday had a great, great deep dive into this proxy fight, and they, they said in, uh, in the article that the, the clean energy projects that Exxon has embarked on uh, have ha- basically had a return on capital of, of 10% compared to their traditional oil and gas business of 15%. So there needs to be a way to really change the economics here in order to make it more profitable for Exxon, or we could be debating this again in the future. All right. Thank you, Leslie. Appreciate it. To combat slowing COVID vaccination rates, CVS giving away big prizes to those who have gotten or will be getting jabbed. Bertha Coombs joins us this morning with more on that story. Bertha. Yeah, big inducements here. Any adult who's been vaccinated through CVS or does it by July 10th can register for its one step closer sweepstakes starting next week. The biggest giveaways, they're pretty big. Five 
$5,000 cash prizes for family reunions, 107-day cruises on Norwegian cruise lines for two, a VIP trip for two in partnership with Procter & Gamble to the Super Bowl 56, a VIP package with iHeartRadio to the iHeart Music Festival, and with dating site Hinge, a $5,000 gift card for what they're calling the ultimate date, and hotel stays with Wyndham as well. Now, do these giveaways work? Well, Ohio just announced the first of five winners of its Vax a Million and full scholarship sweepstakes last night. Two lucky Ohioans are about to be big, and I do mean huge winners because finally the wait is over. Abigail Bugensky from Silverton, congratulations. You just won $1 million in the Vax a Million giveaway. Since launching that lottery, vaccination rates in the state doubled in some counties. More than 2.7 million people have registered as of Monday. And this week, the U.S. Treasury signed off on states using COVID relief funds for those prizes, with four more states now running sweepstakes. CVS could be the first corporate vaccine giveaway on this scale. The company says it is part of the federal retail pharmacy partnership. It wants to step up, but certainly getting folks vaccinated in their stores, Andrew, not a bad thing for revenues. Interesting. Interesting. But if you are, if you've already gotten vax, can you still get the prize? Yeah. Even uh, folks who have gotten vaccinated in in uh, nursing homes, uh, everyone who's already gotten the jab at CVS, they can go register to be part of the sweepstakes. You know, this comes as we have seen with the expansion of vaccination to more people, rates coming down. Right. If you take a look at the CDC figures, back in April, we were averaging about 3 million shots a day or over that. And over the last week or so, we've trended down to about 1.5 million a day. So there really mm. is this effort to try to push more people to get us closer to that sort of herd immunity level. All right. Uh, Bertha, appreciate it very, very much. Next on Squawk Pod. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Today's hearing is about the U.S. financial system. The major bank CEOs grilled by Congress. Americans for Financial Reform's Alexis Goldstein says she's not surprised. So I wouldn't say they're a monopoly, but I certainly think they're an oligopoly and they have a lot of concentration of political power and Congress continues to be concerned about it for good reason. Her conversation with Anthony Scaramucci right after this. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Today's the first time we've ever had the CEOs of the nation's six largest banks together before the committee. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
Here's what we want to hear from you today. What are you and the companies you run going to do, not just say, but actually do to change? Here's Joe Kernan. How about these poor souls you're going to talk about now? You got one side saying, what are you thinking with this stakeholder capitalism crap? You're idiots. And then you got the other side. It's unbelievable. They're just like, wow. They don't know know what to do. Let's show you some of this. They got brought in to be punching bags yesterday. Yeah. Let's show you some of this tape. Some interesting moments yesterday in the Senate Banking Committee hearing where CEOs of big banks testified. The fireworks uh, came, as you might imagine, when Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, began sparring with J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon over overdraft fees. Mr. Dimon, how much did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their consumers in 2020? I think your numbers are totally inaccurate, but we'll have to sit down privately and go through that. These are public numbers. And I also also want to point out, we did not overdraft. Can can you just answer my question? How much did J.P. Morgan collect? How much, in fact, did J.P. Morgan collect in overdraft fees from their customers in 2020? Do you know the number? I don't know the number in front of me, but well, we I actually have upon, the number in front of me. Upon it's request, one billion dollars. We waived the fees for customers upon request if they were un- under stress because of COVID. But you can fix that right now. Mr. Diamond, will you commit right now to refund one and a half billion dollars you took from consumers during the pandemic? No. Senator Warren weighed in yesterday on closing bell, and she used the M word. These banks, ultimately, they have a monopoly in the United States. They are backed up by the U.S. taxpayer. By golly, they are supposed to be there to serve American families. And that's what oversight is about. If they're doing it, then I'll be the first to give them a gold star. But if they're not, I'm going to be the first to call them out. It's a fascinating exchange. Uh, I would say, given all the conversations we have about Apple and Epic and what looks like a monopoly in terms of what a market definition is, I know of no um, of no market definition that could you could ever argue, uh, for better or worse, that these banks are monopolies, in part because there are just so many of them and, and there's so many options right now. And there really is competition uh, for I, she may not want to believe that, but uh, that, that appears to be the case. I don't know, guys. What did you, you think of that exchange? I don't think I need to add anything at all to what you just said, Andrew. What, what Andrew said. What Andrew said. And that rare, that's a rare thing for me to say that. But uh, you're absolutely right. What, it, under no... I'll tell you what I don't know. There's, there's, how many definitions are there of a lot of words? There's like 12 of some. You could go through all 12 right. of a monopoly and you would not find bank there. But, you know, she, she's very touchy-feely and passionate about all these things. And it comes across... To, to certain people, like, wow, she's really fighting for me. So that's, you know, it's Well, politics. you know, on overdraft fees, she, she is. I mean, there is a, look, there's a question about how to think about During overdraft pandemic. fees. pandemic. You're paying right. the overdraft fee because you've overdrafted. And so now there's a risk, effectively, that the bank is taking on on your behalf. That, that's why there's an overdraft fee. That's, that's why this exists the way it does. Now, are... You, you could argue it's a, a sharky kind of thing to do. Maybe the fees could be lower. We've had the CEO of PNC on. Remember, he's, he's effectively removed overdraft fees. But by the way, you can't really overdraft then. I mean, the, so there, there's, there's sort of different things that happen in the, the different accounts. I don't know. It's a complicated one. Yeah. I will say what, what it really brought home is 
how much more complicated things are and how much more contentious it is when you are. Look, this would have been contentious if it was in person, but because it was on this Zoom type of, of, of a feed where you accidentally talk each, over each other and the delays can be bad, it was even worse and more painful and excruciating to watch. Yeah. I mean, it, not that this would have been a friendly encounter had it been in person, but those delays and stepping on each other and really talking over each other and just how painful that is to watch, that, that came through pretty clearly yesterday. Yeah, it, it, it harkens all the way back to the Bankster era of, of you know, 2008 and 2009, I think, too, because true, I guess they're still backed up, by, but, but we've gone to great pains and great lengths to try and make it not, uh, not to have a, a taxpayer bailout next time, that there could be, a, you know, so who knows, you know, what's coming. We, you, you never know where, where the excesses are building up until in hindsight, remember? I mean, not even Bernanke knew that, right. that housing right. was right. going to result in, in what happened. Well, but, so you never, but, but haven't we got, aren't they better capitalized? Are, are they still? Oh, I think still, they're so much better capitalized today. I would say this, though, and this is where she's probably right in this regard. I think we ever got to a point where J.P. Morgan, I don't see this happening, were effectively in so much trouble that it was on the verge of of collapse, even though I know we've said we won't rescue banks and, the, and all of this, I think we would rescue the banks. In fact, I would argue yeah. today the banks truly actually probably are too we'd big to fail to. We, in we a way that they probably weren't even then right. in, in, in some ways. And so, yes, what, look, we just, we, we just socialized all of these losses, prioritized the gains during, the, uh, during this, this last year. So we've seen it happen. And so t- in that regard, and if you think about it like that, I understand why she asks the questions she does, but on the monopoly point, which is a very specific point, um, I think it's a, I think yeah. it's a slam dunk on the other side. I like the uh, I like the compensation question where you go, hey, I got nothing to do with that. You know, that's a board. Uh, I don't know what they do. You know, I don't know what they, I don't know what they're thinking. They're looking at a lot of stuff. You know, what am I supposed to say? No, it's a board. It's like uh, I, I just go along with the board. I go along with the board. I'm not saying, you know, I'm one, not one thing. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I mean, a good left hander makes more but, than Jamie, Jamie Dimon. Uh, you know, someone that, that can right. stay in the pocket, and not get nervous, makes more than, than Jamie Dimon. But that's a market price. But one, Jamie one Dimon's pretty Senator damn good. Warren was He's, a little misleading. One, one thing where it was does. a little misleading was just where they talked about what the regulator told them to do. She said the regulator told you to give everyone a break and to not do any overdraft fees. That that's not the case. The regulators for the banks said anybody who's affected by by right. what's happened with the pandemic, you should give a break on. And their point was we did. Anybody who said they were affected by the pandemic, we did. So it was a. Uh, it was something to see yesterday, and we get round two coming up today because they'll all be going before the House. So we'll see what comes out of that. Joining us now is Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge Capital and a CNBC contributor, and Alexis Goldstein, senior policy analyst uh, at Americans for Financial Reform. What, uh, Alexis, I'll start with you. What would you like to see reformed, and what did we see yesterday that, that bears out Uh, what needs to be done in your view? So I think one of the things we saw in the pandemic last year was the regulators relaxed the rules for the largest banks 
including their capital requirements, in order to encourage them to lend to the broader economy and help kickstart us as we were all struggling with the pandemic. And we did not actually see the big banks up their lending. We saw community banks increase their lending to the economy. But what the big banks seemed to do is sort of keep their powder dry until the Fed allowed them to do buybacks again later on in the year. And then the minute that they were allowed to do that, that's exactly what they did. And so we didn't see the sort of increase from the big banks into lending into the broader economy. And that, in my opinion, is because there weren't conditions, more conditions placed on some of the corporate bond market rescues, on some of the unprecedented interventions. And I think that was a focus of a lot of the lawmakers, right? Are you going to remain neutral in any union organizing? No big bank CEO said yes to that. They all said no in various different ways. And so I think that lawmakers are really interested in ways to make sure that companies aren't leaving workers behind and only enriching their shareholders when they receive this kind of unprecedented support in emergency times like we did during the pandemic. You, during a pandemic, you would expect lending to go down as, as people don't take risk and, and pull their, uh, their horns in in terms of, uh, of, of trying to you know, actively expand or any of the things that are done. I mean, in a really difficult time, that would be tough. And there are a lot of people, there were uh, other ways perhaps of, of getting some funding. Is, is it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. And do you think that the banks actually tightened up their lending Alexis? Well, the- community banks didn't. Community banks increased their lending. And this very reason that the Fed took the steps they did to waive some of the rules and relax them was to stimulate the big banks to lend. But that isn't what we saw. We also saw this sort of separation about the way the corporate bond market was rescued, but municipalities weren't really able to access some of the emergency facilities that the Fed set up. They didn't ask corporations whether or not the Fed should buy their bonds. They just went ahead and did it. Whereas the municipalities had to sort of opt in. They had to meet certain credit requirements. And so I think this is just another illustration of the sort of K-shaped recovery, Mm. where we see the most biggest, most powerful companies having a wonderful recovery while Main Street is still struggling. Black unemployment is still really high. So I think our policies do still need some tweaking to make sure that any economic recovery benefits everybody and not just the top. Anthony, if, if you get offered a CEO job at both at either a bank or an oil company, um, which one? Uh, which one would you I'm, take? Uh, well, would you decline I'm taking for both? You, of- I'm taking you with me, Joe. You're going to be my <laughs> chief of staff. Okay, you and I are going to work it all out with those guys. But it's rough. It's a rough uh, environment. I think it paid a lot of money. I mean, I, I, let's, let's let's be honest. But that was uh, they, they were they got it from both sides yesterday, Anthony. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, uh, Jamie Dimon's lucky that Homeland ended, you know, they had their season finale in season eight because he was auditioning for a hostage video in the season nine of Homeland. <laughs> I think it's totally unfair the way they're being treated. And I, I get the fact that they're fat cats and I get the fact that there's a rise of systemic populism. But we've got to step back and we have to recognize that we're in a capitalist society and they are empowered to take care of their shareholders, and they're empowered to look after their customers. And, both, and by the way, thank God for this society, because we have massive competition going on for these banks. And so if you're not happy with your overdraft fees to some of those major banks, you can move to the neo-banking community. You can move into places like Chime, uh, which are going to give you lower fees, lower overdraft fees, higher interest rates. And I think what Senator Warren is missing about the society, and I get her constituency, and I understand the theater, the kabuki theater that we have to play in the Senate banking testimonies. Uh, You know, I got an 11-day PhD in how Washington works. 
But I think it's wrong, and I think it's wrong for the banking community. If you want to change the entire society, and go back, Joe, go back to 2008, uh, where the banks did collapse, no question about that. They're still in PTSD 13 years later, and they have to operate with great conservatism. One last point. On the community banks, it's a totally different story. They're not viewed from the stress testing point of view from the Federal Reserve in terms of creating a systemic collapse. And so they had way more latitude uh, post-crisis and way more latitude during the pandemic. Well, I just think it's important to remember that banks wouldn't exist without government charters. Banks wouldn't exist without FDIC banking. And it's really not very much to ask them to come before Congress and ask some basic accountability questions. Banks meet with Congress all the time behind closed doors in private with their lobbyists. And I think the public deserves to know what the CEOs are going to say in response to Congress, because, again, banks wouldn't exist without the unprecedented levels of, of government support that we offer through the charters, through the FDIC insurance. And so this isn't just about 2008. This is about all of the regulatory relaxation that happened in the wake of the pandemic. And Congress has some really good questions about whether or not the relaxing of those regulations worked. And I would argue that they didn't. Is there a scenario, Alexis, where you would make a case that these banks are monopolies like Senator Warren? Did you think she overstepped there? And I don't know. I don't know how you make that case. I mean, I used to work on Wall Street, and I would argue that the banking, the large banks are sort of operated as an oligopoly. I mean, even look at Citadel, who's had a lot of success breaking into the retail trading market. They tried to become an investment bank in 2008, and they basically failed because even as you know successful as Ken Griffin is in many areas, he couldn't break into the large investment banking. So I wouldn't say they're a monopoly, but I certainly think they're an oligopoly, and they have a lot of concentration of political power, and Congress continues to be concerned about it for good reason. Anthony, if you had been uh, there yesterday and, and uh, if you signed on to being a kabuki uh, interrogator, which you would have to, would you have attacked the banks from, from the left or were you surprised at Senator Toomey saying you, you, this stakeholder capitalism that you're embracing is, is going to come back and, you know, you're, you're sort of bending to the woke crowd and you're going to hurt your shareholders because of it. Some bank leaders have embraced the so-called stakeholder capitalism, which really diminishes the primary the primacy of shareholders in our economy and enables or encourages corporations to pursue a social agenda rather than prioritize its responsibility to its owners. That's a fact that a well-run business always benefits their stakeholders. That's the nature of, of business. But management's responsibility is to do so in service to shareholders because they own the company. Which side would you have been uh, critical of the banks on? Well, first of all, I appreciate what Alexis is saying about the questioning. Certainly, we need to put people who have that responsibility before the Congress. I just don't love the way they're being questioned because I think they're trying to set up gotcha moments and they're trying to embarrass these executives who I think, by and large, have done a great job since the 2008 global financial crisis. My questions would have been more about where the world is going, because I think those banks are in trouble, Joe. We, You and I can go back to the 25 years ago, we were thinking about breaking up IBM. Look at IBM today. No one's thinking about breaking it up. Those banks are about to get melee by DeFi. They're about to get melee by neo-banking. What I would have been more interested in in Senator Warren's questioning is, guys, what are you going to do with all these bricks and mortar branches and all your employees when everybody is moving to the Internet and their smartphones to make their transactions? I'm more worried about where the future of employment is going for the banking industry 
than what they're talking about right now. So that that would be me. I appreciate what Alexis is saying, uh, but we can't have it both ways. We can't tell the banks, okay, listen, you got to be very tight on your capital controls. We can't have any systemic banking risk. That's what we learned in 2008. That's what we learned from the firefighters book that uh, Dr. Bernanke and Secretary Paulson wrote. And then tell them, okay, well, look, you got to go out now and start uh, uh, lending the money aggressively. So I think there's a lot of hypocrisy going on, and I'm worried about the future, Joel, uh, less than than what's going on right now. That's my honest opinion. Anthony Scaramucci, Alexis Goldstein, thank you both. Next on Squawk Pod, Martha Stewart, the entrepreneur on her line of CBD gummies. It is not to make you high. It is to relieve stress, to add calm. And during this pandemic, people have really responded very, very favorably to this well-made, delicious product. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. And a reminder that our guests are still joining us at social distance, thanks to modern technology. And when people are on a Zoom at home, you get a glimpse, or in the case of a podcast, a listen to their lives. And Martha Stewart's home, as you can absolutely imagine, is a pretty special place, complete with the spring-like sounds of birdsong. She spoke to our Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Cannabis sales are booming, and MKM Partners is telling investors to buy shares of Canopy Growth. It upgraded the stock to a buy earlier this week. Part of the reason is because that stock has come back down from the stratosphere. But a big part of the reason that they cited here was the Martha Stewart gummies that they said are rapidly gaining distribution and recruiting new customers. Stewart was recently named a strategic advisor for Canopy Growth and joins us right now in a Squawk exclusive. She, of course, is also the founder of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, And Martha, it's always great to see you. Thanks for being with us this morning. Nice to be with you. Thank you. I I thought what was so interesting in this call out of Wall Street is that they're saying you are a big part of the reason for the growth there and bringing in new customers. A third of the customers who are buying your gummies are new customers to this. And it just made me think about over the years what you've done, how you've brought people along. Why, Why do you think it is that so many new customers are coming in based on your stamp of approval here? Well, my friends have always been a little bit hands-off with the CBD, a little bit quizzical uh, when, when the subject comes up at parties. And now that they have tasted and experienced the niceness of the gummies, for example, and our CBD oil drops and our uh, soft gels, uh, they're finding, uh, even my banker told me that she takes three gummies a day, one in the morning, noon and night, and she feels better. Um, it calms her. So everybody has a slightly different reaction to the consumption of CBD, uh, and the audience is growing. Uh, the the uh, satisfaction, too, is growing because when you're creating gummies that look like this and taste like this, we have 15 amazing flavors. Um, you know, I tasted every gummy in the market before I developed these gummies. And 
um, I thought, oh, gosh, these are sticky. These taste like the little gummy bears that you buy at the at the candy counter. Uh, these have such good flavor. They're based on uh, the flavors of the garden. Uh, there's calamondin. There's black raspberry. There's red raspberry. There's Meyer lemon, blood orange, rhubarb. Uh, tastes that you only get in the finest French restaurants when they serve you the pâte de fruit at the end of a dinner. So we're upscaling the CBD market, uh, and that's what Canopy really loves. We are really making things taste better. We have lots of ideas for uh, creating candies, confections, uh, drinks, special drinks that you drink every single day uh, with an infusion of very good CBD isolate included in those drinks. Um, so there's there's a market there, and, and there is um, science behind the market, and Canopy's doing a very good job. You know, I've, I've never tried CBD before. Count me in, in the the people that you were talking about, the people who who haven't tried this before. I did, will did say, send, hearing you talk you about it, hearing some of these flares... Yeah, I haven't seen them yet, but I, I, I am tempted, and I think I might just do it. But I wanted to ask you, how, how often do you use CBD... And do you have pets that you feed CB, CBD products to, too? Well, we, uh, we have only developed um, dog, dog uh, products. We have wellness CBD for dogs, and they come in large and small dosages. So smaller dogs, you have to read the package, make sure you get the right dosage. We have calm, and we have mobility. Uh, these are very useful for the dogs, and they seem to react extremely pleasantly and nicely to the consumption of these particular um, uh, dog CBDs. Do, and, you, um, do you use CBD every day? I, I At night, I take uh, two droppers of my CBD oil drops. <laughs> and if I want something sweet, I don't eat a lot of candy. So if I want something sweet, I take three or four of these different flavors, just, you know, because they're really interesting and they're good. And, and uh, the, this helps me sleep the little bit I sleep every night anyway. I, I'm a, not a good sleeper. So this really does let me just, do, you know, go into uh, deep slumber for a few hours. And that's what I really need. And it really does work, Becky. It so it's, really does. It's, it's more about a calm feeling than, than a getting high feeling. I mean, oh, no, this, <laughs> honestly, no, I've CBD never tried is, it. I've always kind of wondered. Yeah, CBD is not THC. It's not, it's not the cannabis. This is derived from hemp that's grown in the United States, uh, primarily in California. A lot of growers are, are popping up here and there. There's a really good grower of organic hemp right in the Hudson Valley, right up, right up in uh, Hudson, New York. Uh, it's growing very, very good um, hemp. So this is not, uh, this is uh, the isolate. They're isolating just the CBD uh, element from the, from the hemp plant. And, um, and it is not to make you high. It is to relieve stress, to add calm, to even you out a little bit if you're feeling anxiety. And during this pandemic and during the stay-at-home period that we've all been experiencing, um, people um, have really responded very, very favorably to this well-made, delicious product. Hey, Martha, it's Andrew here. Uh, I'm an uh, occasional CBD user. I had a shoulder issue last year, and so I would use uh, CBD cream on it, actually prescribed by my doctor, of all things. Um, yep. And I will tell you, it, it worked, and I've occasionally... Uh, 
taking the gummies it doesn't help for my sleep the way I think it helps other people for whatever reason. I, melatonin oh. does does a little bit better for me. But oh. my question to you is, sort of longer term, this is a very fractured market. It's an early market uh, at this point right. still. How you say, you know, if we had this conversation five years from now, how much consolidation do you think is going to ultimately happen uh, in, in this business? Um, how many other big players are going to try to get into this business? What does this look like? Because, um, you know, there's lots of different people putting a lot of different brands on things right now. Uh, you have uh, such a spectacular brand unto itself. But I just wonder how you think about that uh, in, in, in the sort of larger context of the industry. Well, it's going to it's growing rapidly. By 2023, they anticipate that the marketplace will be around $10 billion dollars. And as it is legalized, as edibles are legalized and uh, and even cannabis is legalized in more and more states in the United States, the market will grow exponentially. Um, I think um, now that they're infusing drinks with CBD, what a nice thing this is. Instead of dad coming home and, you know, sitting down and smoking a joint, he can get some nice relief when he sees the kids all around him to just sip a Quattro, which is a canopy drink uh, made in conjunction with the uh, with the Constellation brand, uh, just take a sip of uh, CBD, 20 milligrams in a 12-ounce can. I mean, it's delicious. And uh, and he's not right. going to get high. He's just going to get calm. He's going to be feeling good. And it's such a better uh, it's such a better impression on your children right. than, than hey, smoking Martha, though, do you, do you worry, though, about the standards? I mean, it doesn't seem like right now that there are, that there are different scientific standards. I don't, I don't think there's, there's sort of a base case. I mean, I, as I said to you, I had a doctor prescribe it, and I remember we had a conversation about which brands and how much how much CBD needs to be in there and what kind. I mean, there's there's a lot well, going on here. What has to happen on the regulatory side, or do you think that regulators should get involved in terms of how this is uh, marketed um, and 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 what and what the ingredients really are? Okay. Well, I believe in integrative medicine, and I was recently I recently hurt my foot and. I went to um, HSS, a very reputable hospital, and I was prescribed CBD gels as well as CBD ointment for my foot. Now, that's right in the hospital. So, uh, And then there are certain dermatologists that also agree that CBD is really good for your skin. It's a growing market as they become educated, as the medical world becomes more educated in the value of the, uh, of the uh, actual goodness of CBD, uh, I think we'll see more and more and more acceptance. And uh, as people try these gummies and try the oils and try the gels, uh, there's more and more, oh boy, that does make me feel a little bit better. I mean, we're looking for alternatives. I, I, am, I am not a big drug user in any way. I mean, prescription drugs. I just don't. I just don't. I don't, I don't smoke marijuana. But I do find a relief and a and a nice feeling from the CBD. And if I feel it, um, I think um, because I have a very good diet and a, and, a, and a clean lifestyle, I think other people will find that it just adds a little something extra to a day. And that's what I think the market is all about right now. And Canopy does a lot of research. It's not like they're just putting this stuff out there. They have a very good scientific team of doctors and researchers that are developing products with us and with themselves um, to uh, put out in the marketplace that are viable and and uh, and useful. Right. Martha, we, we've got to run, but very quickly, there are these reports out about a new story that's being developed for Netflix uh, about your life. Uh, just wonder, yes. why Netflix? 
Well, uh, they won. They won the bid. Uh, R.J. Cutler is my uh, is my producer director. He's fantastic. He right now, right now he has the Billie Eilish bio out, out which has been very popular, and uh, I love him. He's so nice to work with, and uh, and I think it's time. Um, I haven't written my autobiography yet either. That's that will follow the biography, and uh, I've had an interesting life. I think people will be kind of very fascinated with what's gone on in the last. I won't say how old I am, but everybody knows in the last eight decades, and uh, and so and so much change in the world. Uh, so uh, in in you know it's going to be fun. You'll hear a lot more about it. Well, we look forward to it. And thanks for taking the time with us today. It's always good to see well, you. You're very welcome. Thank you. And that's Squawk Pod for today. It's a good thing. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.